creatures of habit, aren't we? You wanted to stand up, I know. Orlando throwing us a curveball there. I'm trying, I was sitting there trying to think, when's the last time I sat down before I came up to, to share some thoughts? And I couldn't remember, so great, this is great. Hey, glad you're here with us, sitting here in, in here with us. Glad you're online with us uh, today or tomorrow or whenever this is for you as well. Glad we're all together. Falling under the category of time wasted on the internet, I spent a little bit of time last week actually searching for things that people search for on the internet. You can do that. That's a thing. I don't know if you knew that or not. You can search for what other people search for on the internet. Um, just Google it, right? If you don't know how to do something, you Google it and you can type in anything. How do I? And you'll get a lot of options of how to do that thing. Now, we've been spending several weeks going through the little book of James. And today, James is going to talk about something we all need to know how to do, and that is, how do I deal with relationships? Specifically, James is going to talk about how do you deal with scratchy relationships? How do you deal with relationships that are a little bit difficult? And I got to wondering... Would I get the same information on the internet as I got from James? If, if I typed in how to deal with difficult relationships, would Google tell me the same thing that James tells me? Spoiler alert, <laughs> no. <laughs> you do not get the same information on the internet as you'll get from James. Also, you'll end, you'll end up uh, in some pretty deep rabbit holes when you go down that path on the internet. Um, for instance, here's a couple things that you can, and a lot of people do, search often on the internet when it comes to how to deal with difficult relationships. Why did I get married? <laughs> I am not going to ask who amen that. Whoever this brother is over here, and 40,000 other people Google that every single month. Why did I get married? How to mend a broken heart. Over 100,000 Google searches per month. How do I mend a broken heart? How to have an affair. 64,000 searches a month. How to get away with murder. Almost 32,000 searches per month, which I hope most of those are dealing with the television show, How to Get Away with Murder. But still, How to Hide a Dead Body is searched a thousand times a month on Google. Kids, stay off the internet. But you know, most broken hearts are rooted in broken relationships. Most violence in our world, violent crimes, it's not a stranger against another stranger. Most of it is people we know lashing out, striking out against people they know, people that we love, family members, friends, acquaintances. Sooner or later, every single one of us is going to need some help when it comes to sustaining a long-term relationship. We just do. 
especially knowing that every single long-term relationship that we have is going to go through these seasons of just tough times. There's going to be hard times with with, uh, our different relationships. So James is going to give us some help and supply some answers about dealing with difficult relationships. Some answers that you won't find anywhere on Google, by the way. Before we get there, before we get to James, uh, something I want you to be aware of as we talk about this, there's really about two different types of conversations. There are feeling conversations And there are problem-solving conversations. And you need to know the difference. You need to know what you're in the middle of as well. There are some conversations that we have, they're feeling conversations. The person just wants you to hear them. They want you to listen to them. They don't want you to fix anything. Just hear me. I want you to feel with me. Some of you are really good at that. Some of you are really bad at that. And then there are those other conversations where, okay... I want you to help me. I need help here. I have a problem that I want solved. It's important to know what conversation you're in. As a husband, I often get these two conversations backwards, by the way. As a dad, I almost always get them backwards. My adult daughter calls me on the phone almost every day. Just about every day we talk and she shares with me what's going on, what's going on with the kids, and you know her, her struggles and challenges and all these things. And I immediately go into dad mode, okay? I go into problem-fixing mode. Here's what you need to do. Here's what I do. Why don't you just do this? And she always responds with, Dad, I just want you to listen to me. Dad, I'm a verbal processor. That's what she always says. I'm a verbal processor. I'm just processing this. I just want you to hear me. I'm just working it out in my head. I don't want you to fix anything. Just listen. And I'm like, okay. I can do that. But here's what you ought to do. (laughs) There are feeling conversations and there are problem-solving conversations. You need to know, this conversation that we're about to get in the middle of with James, it is not a feeling conversation, okay? If you want a feeling conversation, go back and read John. This is James. This is going to be a problem-solving conversation that James is going to be in the middle of. And he is going to be direct. He's going to be practical. I keep using that word. He's going to be a little bit harsh, this morning. In fact, you might find him a little bit offensive this morning, but James is interested in helping us solve a problem that we all have at some time or another. And it's really kind of exciting because we all bring to the table these problems. And we all bring to the table these problem people that we deal with. Now, maybe for you, it's somebody that you're working with. It's just a, a personality that you just, you, you just butt heads all the time and it, just, it makes life kind of miserable when you're at work. Maybe you're in a season where it's a family member and you just can't quite see eye to eye with that person. Maybe, maybe it's a spouse and you're just kind of going through a rough patch right now. Oh, a, a close friend, some other relationship. James is going to tell us whatever it is that you're dealing with, whoever it is that you're dealing with, Whatever you think right now your problem is, it's probably not your problem. You think you're in the middle of a problem. James is going to tell you, "Mm, your biggest problem is probably not the problem that you think you're in the middle of. 
So let's find out what he's talking about. Uh, we're in James chapter 4, uh, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? James asks the question, why are you fighting? Why are you quarreling? Why the arguments? Why the bickering? Now, remember who James is writing to. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to people who are following Jesus. Wow. Think about that. In the first century, followers of Jesus, brothers and sisters of Christ, they were quarreling and fighting. Aren't you glad that we don't have to deal with that today, right? And it's interesting, James doesn't seem to be the least bit interested in why they're quarreling and fighting. He doesn't bring that up at all. He doesn't say, tell me both sides of the argument here. He doesn't say, which of you are the more biblical here? He doesn't do any of that. Instead, he jumps way past that. He, he dives a lot deeper than just that. And I told you, this is a problem-solving conversation that James is having. And he wants them to focus not on what they think the problem is. He wants to bring them face-to-face -face with what he knows is the real problem. And he actually, he answers his question with a question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Don't you hate when somebody answers a question with a question? Now i got to think. No, Jesus did that a lot. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? James says that those conflicts, those fights, all that stress that you're experiencing, all that tension, you think it's out there somewhere? You think out there is the problem? James is saying... No, the problem is here. The problem's not out there somewhere. The problem is, is in here. The heart of the problem is almost always a problem of the heart. James saying you're focused on what's going on out there. You're fighting and you're quarreling. That tension. No, it's a heart problem. No, it's deep in your soul. It's not about them. Maybe it's about you. And so James makes this statement, and then we have to make a decision. Okay, James isn't going to let me unload on everybody else. He's turning it back toward me. Do I want to keep reading? Am I willing to go there with James? Well, I am. I hope you are too. Verse 2. You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet. But you cannot have what you want. Then he says it again, you quarrel and fight. Now, this is especially hard for us because we never blame ourselves in the middle of an argument. It's never my fault. It's always somebody else's fault. That's why we say things like, he makes me so mad. She knows just how to press my buttons. Now, why would he do a thing like that? Now, if they hadn't done that, I wouldn't have done this. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. James says, not so fast. The reason you fight, the reason you have conflict, the reason you have these desires, it's because of these, uh, this envy that you have. You, know, you covet. 
There's things that you want you don't have. There's things you think you deserve that you don't have. And it runs so deeply in us that we don't even see it anymore. It gets so embedded in us that we don't even recognize it in our own lives. It's like the two little boys who are fighting over the last piece of bacon at breakfast and the mother says, you know, if Jesus was here, he would want his brother to have that piece of bacon. And the boy says, Mom, you're exactly right. And he turns to his brother, you be Jesus. <laughs> you want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you can't have what you want. You quarrel and fight. James is able to see that our conflict is not just about a problem. It's not just about a person. It's not about theology. It's not a difference of ideas. There's something going on inside me. There's something going on deep in my heart, in my soul. I mean, we all want to be right. We crave influence. We want to be in control. Now remember, this is a problem-solving conversation that we're listening in on. There are things that you want you don't have. You're covetous. You're envious. But James doesn't just stop there. He, he, he continues to drill a little deeper. Okay, James, why am I so envious? You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. That is a really convicting message. Really convicting to me because James has pretty much just defined my entire prayer life in two sentences. You don't have because you don't ask. You think you don't need God? You're too busy? You've convinced yourself that you can take care of it yourself? And then when you do ask God, you're asking for all the wrong reasons. Your heart's not in the right place. You're asking for all the wrong, with all the wrong motives. What you want to get, you want for yourself. Again, problem-solving conversation. James says the problem isn't just the conflict. It's not just that you have unmet desires. The problem is your life revolves around you. The problem is you're selfish. The problem is you are convinced that I have to be right. And it has to be all about me. You know, sometimes I think as Christians, we sort of come to the conclusion that, well, I go to church and I do some good things. So I've got God in the right place in my life. But too often what we do doesn't exactly line up with what we say as far as where God is in my life. In fact, too often, if we're brave enough to admit it, we really only love God when He gives us the things that we love. And if we're brave enough to admit it, we're really only faithful to God when He's faithful to me. God, you give me what I want, and I'll be faithful. You, you give me success, and I'll be faithful. You give me more money, I'll give you more money. You give me the relationship that I long for, I'll give you the relationship that you long for. Just give me what I want. And I want comfort. I want security. 
Because it's really more about me than it is about God or anyone else. So James is getting pretty direct here. It's about to get worse, by the way. (laughs) But it's going to get worse so that we can get better. Um, Stick with us here. Verse 4. You adulterous people. Ouch. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to followers of Jesus. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who is an enemy of God. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Now, I grew up being taught, and I grew up pretty much believing that friendship with the world was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Now, as long as I'm a little bit better than everybody else, then me and God are in a good place together. But James is asking us to look deep within ourselves. He's challenging us in a big way to be honest with ourselves. What is it that really, truly matters most in your life? At the center of your heart, at the center of your life, what really, truly matters to you? Let me see if I can explain it this way. You know, we have all these different levels of concerns that we deal with. And on the outside, we might call those things as some peripheral concerns. You know, there's just a lot of things in our lives that we have to be concerned about. Somebody's got to mow the grass. Somebody's got to cook the dinner. Somebody's got to take the kids to school. Somebody's got to go to work. Our life is filled with these peripheral concerns. We spend a tremendous amount of energy and focus on these peripheral concerns because we have to. Life is busy. We're busy people. We have to deal with these things, and we know that. So we spend a lot of time dealing with the things that we have to deal with. A little bit deeper than that, you might say, are the primary concerns. Those are things that we would identify as, okay, these things mean more to me. My family. My wife. My kids. My health. These are things that really, truly matter to me. Yeah, i got to change the oil in my car, but that's not as important as my kids. Now, there, there are things that I've got to be concerned with, but this is much more important to me. These are my primary concerns. But even deeper than that, we all have a core concern. At the core of you, at the core of me, is something. There's something that matters most to me. And notice, that's core concern singular, not plural. James wants you to know there's going to be one thing in that center spot. There can only be one core concern. Now, we've got tons of peripheral concerns, tons of stuff that we have to think about and deal with, and we have a lot of primary concerns. James says there can only be one core concern. Now, of course, we're sitting in church, right? So we're all going to say, God, God is my core concern But how often does our lives tell the story of God and something else? 
My core concern is God and something else. God and my success. God and my family. God and my happiness and my comfort. The temptation is always, always, always to try to put something else there with God in that core concern. James says, listen, you adulterous people. Now this boils down to what matters most in your life. And you're taking things out of those, that primary concern, those things that are they're really important and they matter. And by the way, all those things are important. There's no bad things there in those, you know, the, whatever we might list as our concerns. Because you're trying to pull some things out of that primary concern and put them down where only God deserves to be. That's always the temptation. And the Bible actually has a word for that when we do that. When we take something that's really important to us and we pull it down, then it becomes part of our core concern. Actually, the Bible has two words for that. One is sin. The other is idol. You're making that thing an idol. Not some little statue that, you know, we bow down to. Just anything that is substituting itself for God. Anything other than God that we would identify as a, the core concern in our life. This is what matters most to me. See, beneath the conflict, beneath the envy, beneath the selfishness, beneath all that stuff, the problem that James is identifying is God alone has to be the center of your life. We say, hey, I go to church. I do good things. But when it comes right down to it, does God matter most in my life? Would people know? Would people see? You know, God is what matters most to that person. Again, this is not a feeling conversation. This is a problem-solving conversation. And this is a problem. In fact, if we don't get this right, we won't get anything right. If we don't get this right, our whole life is going to be disoriented. And James says, you know, we don't pray, we don't involve God, and when we do involve God, we do it for the wrong reasons. You know, it's all about ourselves. And that leads to all this behavior, the fighting, the quarreling. You know, you think about it, if James was just simply interested in solving some arguments... He could have just said, here's some conflict resolution tips, right? You know, here's some strategy for that. But he doesn't. He, he dives a lot deeper than that. He's getting closer and closer to the core uh, of who we really are. And the frustrating thing about this for us is we know James is right. Intellectually, you know, we put our head on our pillow at night. We know James is right. We know how selfish we are. We know how self-centered we are. We realize, yeah, it is all about me. The problem is, how do I fix that? It's a problem-solving conversation, right? How do I fix that? Yes, the problem is me. Well, how can I fix that? Let's ask James. Verse 5. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? The Holy Spirit that's living inside each of us longs for us to be faithful. And then, verse 6, James makes this powerful statement. Such a great statement. Such a great thought. But he gives us more grace. 
How do I fix this problem that I have? The problem is me. How do I fix that? He gives us more grace. Wow. I need to hear that today. You need to hear that today. Then he quotes Proverbs. That's why scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is a big deal. This is a really big deal. Because James has been laying it on pretty thick here. He says, we fight, we quarrel, we're envious, we're selfish. Then beneath that, we're kind of living at odds with God. We don't trust God. We don't ask Him. Then when we do, we ask with the wrong motives. He's not the center of our lives. That's what we do. What does God do? He gives more grace. That's what God does. He gives us more grace. Grace. The power of God to do what only God can do. Grace. The, the extra chance at the end of a long list of extra chances. Grace. The freedom, the forgiveness, the shame and guilt that we could never escape on our own. If you got doubts, If you're a little bit unsure of what you believe about Jesus, there is grace for you. If you're skeptical, there's grace for you. If you're an absentee parent, there's grace for you. If you've hurt someone, there's grace for you. If you've been unfaithful in your relationships, there's grace for you. If you've been incredibly selfish, self-centered, there's grace for you. But of course, all us legalists are going to say, well, that's setting the bar mighty low. Grace does not set the bar low. Not at all. Grace just clarifies who it is that's holding the bar. And it's not me. And it's not you. It's Jesus. Salvation is found in no one else. It's Jesus. And Jesus, if he wants to be judgmental and condemning, he can. If Jesus wants to be graceful, he can. James tells us he is. He gives more grace. And again, it's problem-solving conversation. You want to know one of our biggest problems when it comes to grace? Receiving it. It's really hard for us to receive the grace of God. How do we do that? Here you go. Submit yourselves then to God. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. I want to close this sermon 
by just allowing God's Word to speak to us this morning about grace. I want to read to you a very small sampling of what the Bible says about the grace of God. This grace that God desperately wants us to receive. And I'm going to challenge you, as you listen, to humble yourself before the Lord. I want to challenge you as as we just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. To submit yourself to God. And in just a minute, I'm going to ask you to, to close your eyes and kind of open your heart. And in just a minute, I'm going to ask you to assume some posture of submission. And I'm not sure what that is. Maybe it's kneeling down right where you are and listening. Maybe it's holding your hands up in praise to God. Maybe it's putting your arm around somebody you love as you listen together to what God wants you to hear. Maybe it's just sitting quietly and allowing God to speak to your heart. But I want you to assume some position where you can receive the grace of God. And then, after I read each of these verses, I want you to respond. I'm going to say, and the church said, instead of saying amen like we always do, we're going to say, if you believe it, I believe it. So, close your eyes, humble your heart, get in a place, in a position, in a posture where you can accept the word of the Lord. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it. And the church said, I believe it. He has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we've done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. And the church says, I believe it. For sin shall no longer be your master, because we're no longer under the law. We are under grace. And the church says, I believe it. For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And the church says, I believe it. My grace is enough for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And the church said, I believe it. Because of His grace, He's made us right in His sight and given us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. And the church says, I believe it. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race, to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And the church says, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And the church says, Your goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And the church says, Father, we pray in the powerful name of Jesus.
thanking you for hearing our desperate cry for grace. As we bow, as we kneel, as we raise our hands to you, as we embrace those that we love, would you humble us before your mighty throne? Father, would you help us to keep you, you alone, in a place where only you and you alone deserve and demand to be the center of our lives, the ruler of our hearts. We humble ourselves before you and we trust you to lift us up. And the church said, I believe it. Let's go ahead and be standing. Joel's got a song that we are going to use as a song of encouragement this morning.